next scary movie. Uh-huh. What's your favorite scary movie? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. What comes to mind? Welcome to the Jumping Scared Podcast. My name's Alex, and I'm joined here today by my twin brother, Eric. We've bonded over horror movies throughout our lives, and we're here today to share that love with all of you. Welcome, Eric. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm really excited. This should be the most fun podcast we've had yet. I think so, too. I think it's going to be a really good one. And to give you guys an idea of what we're doing today, this is something I think is really important. When you look at art or media in general, kind of coming up with some of your favorites or trying to assess you know, some sort of rating value for movies or anything you really enjoy, it's difficult, but I think very, very important. Not only for yourself, but it allows you to engage in, in I think, really helpful and educational conversation with others. And so that's what we've done today. We've tried to really you know, pin down some of our favorite horror movies and come up with a consensus top 10 between ourselves. And uh, the brief methodology for how we did so, we each ranked our favorite 30 horror movies, just one through 30. Um, so no actual rating value for each individual movie, but we just did a list. And then we compared our lists and took average values. And so then we came up with a top 10 agreed upon movies by us. And Eric, I don't know about you, but this was a struggle for me. <laughs> I definitely had times where I was, you know, I had a movie I, I didn't think of. And then I thought of later, I'm like, oh, that's probably close to my top 10. And then you, you just got to, there's a big shuffle you have to keep doing. Yeah, there were probably around 45 movies that at least came to mind. Not necessarily that like, oh, yeah, this deserves a ranking. But as I was going through, like, um, maybe. So it's it's yeah, it was it was difficult, but I think it was beneficial just from like a understanding what you like perspective like it it's very rare to just sit down and be like okay here's my favorite movies it's kind of a it's kind of like a sensitive issue like you're putting your favorites out there for criticism and people can be kind of standoffish about that but I don't know I think it's going to be a, a worthwhile exercise and I'm excited to talk through that process and what we came up with yeah, I completely agree, and I think it's interesting that you say it. It's a bit hard to to put that out there. It's it's you're you're putting your horror taste on display for everybody else, and we've we've spoken a little bit on this podcast about a little sense of gatekeeping that exists within the horror community. So this is what we're talking about: a movie that we put in our top five, our top ten, that other people are like, oh, it's not even in my top fifty, or like, oh, I can't believe you forgot this. So this is you know very subjective, very personalized, and our list might look completely different from yours, but that doesn't make our list bad, and it doesn't make your list bad. It's just really what your personal preference is, and we're going to try to explain with these movies why we really like them, and that's that's really what you know it boils down to. Why did you enjoy this movie? Why do you think it's a good horror movie? And if that if you think it's in your top 10, it's in your top 10. Don't let other people you know influence that. Exactly. Okay, so to start off, we're going to just list some honorable mentions and for honorable honorable mentions those are going to be anything that we had in our individual top 10s that did not make the consensus top 10 so for some of these i may have rated it really highly but eric didn't rate it at all or maybe he had it rated towards the end or vice versa so i have a few more of those than eric does so i'm just going to kind of run through some of mine real quick um, these are ones that i had in my top 10 that eric um, didn't like as much as me so they just missed out on the our consensus top 10 and that's going to start with 
um, 2006 Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo, sorry, Guillermo del Toro. It's a, a Spanish language film. So El Labyrinto del Fauno is the Spanish language name. It's a very, very, very good movie. Some people might not consider it a true horror. It's a bit of a kind of fantasy, I don't know, kind of fantasy drama almost. If you haven't seen it, it takes place in the Spanish Civil War, and it's about a girl who's trying to cope with a new existence in, in this living in this abusive household with a very uh, aggressive, not friendly uh, army military, like army officer who is her new father, and she's uh, using this, these fantastical elements to escape. And there's a really a blurred line between reality and fiction. Very, very good movie. I recommend it anybody it's not only one of my favorite horror movies but one of my favorite movies of all time so disappointed uh that eric didn't i think you may not have rated it at all is that does that sound right that is accurate and so the biggest reason i didn't rank it is that the only time i've seen this movie was in a school setting while i was kind of doing homework there are some scenes that jump out as me as like remembering how cool they are with the uh the eye eye monster who uses the pale man the pale man yeah so we're gonna we're gonna remain spoiler free for our honorable mentions until we get to the top three we're gonna remain mostly spoiler free but the pale man is a intensely creepy creature (laughs) and if you haven't seen the movie i recommend it and if you have seen the movie you you know what we're talking about well and if you've seen a guillermo del toro movie in the past you kind of know his stylistic choices and this doesn't stray far from that it's kind of fantastical it's kind of based heavily in uh interpersonal relationships and it's a well done movie i can say that it's just unfortunately something that didn't didn't cross my top 30 and that's interesting that you said that because a lot of times how much you enjoy a movie is very much a reflection on the setting in which you've seen it um there's gonna be a movie that you're gonna talk about that i know i just i wasn't in a good place when i watched it i was i was watching it outside with headphones while cutting my dog's hair is the only time i've seen it in full so like i'm obviously not gonna get a full you know a nearly as good of an experience watching that as if i'm in a theater or just at home really paying attention so you can really get a distorted view of a movie based off the setting in which you're uh, you know you're taking it in um okay moving forward uh my number five is 1990s Misery by Rob Reiner, adapted from a Stephen King novel of the same name. Very, very compelling tale um, of an author named Paul Sheldon, played by James Kahn, who is in a car accident and then is taken care of um, in a rural Colorado home of Annie Wilkes, who is played by Kathy Bates, in her first ever Hollywood role. She was a Broadway play actress before, uh, misery but this is her first role at all like in in really like you know big film which she really steals the show if you've seen misery you know how well she plays this character and if you haven't i really recommend it it's a very good very good dramatic build with small set design and just really compelling relationships between these two main leads yes and, and this eric is... you just watched it recently for the first time yes yeah, so this was another one i had not ranked and this one was not because i didn't rank it and I'd seen it. It was because I didn't rank it because I hadn't seen it. Uh, so on your recommendation, I did watch it this past week and it was very good. I mean, it's such a simple, simple idea that it, it doesn't take it doesn't take a lot. But what it does is it makes it makes a it makes so much with what it has. And uh, 
yeah, I if I'm re reconsidering, I most likely would throw this in my top thirty. Um, but too late to throw a wrench in yeah, that plan. Yeah, understandable. So. But it was a great yeah, movie. Very good. I definitely recommend it. Rob Reiner kind of went on a tear in the '90s, and this is a great example. Uh, you know, he also had Stand by Me. Uh, off the top of my head, I know uh, uh, Princess Bride, Stand by Me. This is Spinal Tap, and Misery is another great accolade for Rob Reiner in the 90s. And moving forward, my number seven that was not ranked, or that was ranked by Eric, or no, actually this was an honorable mention um, by Eric, so just outside his top 30, El Orfanato, The Orphanage, a Spanish-language film from 2007 by director J.A. Bayona. This is a very, very interesting movie that deals with a woman's ability to deal with loss, uh, in this case, death. And she has to approach this orphanage that she has past ties to from when she was younger. And this movie does a lot with really creepy, I want to call it almost motifs, as you'd get in literature. Like there's this, they do this really fun thing with this game. It's a childhood game they play, similar to hide and seek, but they call it a uh, toca la pared. So they say uno, dos, tres, toca la pared. And that means like one, two, three, knock on the wall. And they use this really interesting theme of this game where uh, they set it up really creepily where you knock on the wall and you don't know what's behind you. Then you turn around and you knock one, two, three, knock on the wall again. You turn around and someone's coming. So very interesting movie. Um, I haven't seen it in a long time, but I remember... When I first watched it, I just, I loved it. I thought it was very, very good. And yeah, Eric, you wanted to speak real quickly on it? Yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the better parts, uh, I'll try to remain spoiler free. There is a, um, a character costume design that has become popularized in the last 10 to 15 years. And a good, good reason by, because of that is due to this movie and it's not, outlandish but what it is is it takes the ordinary and just adds a little bit of extraordinary <laughs> yeah. and you're not expecting it and it's uh it's very jarring yes. <laughs> just yep, to look very at much it. so all right moving right along my number nine movie um that came in at our 11 spot on our consensus so just outside our consensus top 10 it's let the right one in from 2008 by thomas alfredson uh, a swedish horror movie about a young girl who struggles to live in modern the modern society as a vampire and uh, you know we're going to remain spoiler free but this is just a very very compelling new original take on the classic monster movie of a vampire um, that kind of really just turns the turns the genre upside down a little bit it's very unique very in, you know like i said it's individual it, it's it's distinct and they really just tell a compelling story between this this main girl and a, a young boy and yeah honestly it's a great movie uh you could probably get non-horror fans to like it just as much as you do because it's just really a compelling tale between the, the two main characters and uh yeah it's just great it's really it's really just a coming of age story and just just a little bit of a horror scary twist but also um it's yeah it's it's a it's a beautiful horror if you can if you can say that i guess um it's well done and it's well done because of child actors which is hard yep, to do absolutely uh good good addition yeah very good child actors who are playing the main two characters so great movie 
And last but not least for my honorable mentions is A Quiet Place from 2018 by director and main lead John Krasinski in his directorial debut a fantastic movie if you're a horror fan at all you've heard of it you've at least seen a trailer you've seen something about it you might know the concept but this is a movie for me it just i don't want to do too many spoilers but it played with sound in a way that was so creative and so fun for me that it just made a completely immersive world and a completely immersive movie for me and i just as soon as it started till the time it ended i was just thrust into that world and it was like i just had been there it, they told a very good tale it was a really you know essentially a family's trying to survive in this post-apocalyptic world and so that's been done to death that's that's not a I'm not going to say that's a scarce theme in horror or thrillers, you know, this post-apocalyptic world trying to survive, but they do take a new take on it and just do it really well. And I absolutely loved this movie from 2018. It jumped into my top 10 and I think it's going to stay there. Yeah, this is um this is a good opportunity for brand new horror fans who may have got turned off by the happening or I mean Bird Box, sorry, who may have got turned off by Bird Box. Watch A Quiet Place, and you can see a much better take on that kind of idea. I agree. I don't think Bird Box was terrible. I think it was very mediocre, but it's just been – it's got so much hype and over the internet <laughs> that it became like this almost like a meme and you know thing like that. But A Quiet Place is truly a, a, a phenomenal horror film and my favorite from 2018 um, by far. And, yeah, just a really good movie. Okay, yes. so that rounds out my honorable mentions. And Eric, you're going to jump in with a couple yourself. Yeah, I've just got three quick ones I'm going to go through, uh, starting off with a certified classic that I am quite disappointed ended up uh, unranked, and that is going to be Alien by Ridley Scott, 1979. Um, there's not a lot to say about this movie. It's Bond countless sequels even leading up until 2017 there was a, a brand spanking new one uh, i mean it's just it's 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 the uh, classic idea of deteriorating group dynamics with a deathly presence and making things go crazy except for the locale is on a spaceship and the deathly presence is something that you've never seen before and it's they do a great job sigourney weaver plays the hysterical uh, space woman amazingly and strong female lead too looks. she's she's very a very strong uh character for the time uh, ni- yes. 1980 1979 so yeah and in my opinion all of the visual stuff holds up really well to this day yeah and so i i, I kind of want to apologize a little bit this is one that i left unranked off my top 30 and this, like i said earlier this is the movie that i saw not too long ago. The only time I've seen it in full was I was cutting my dog's hair, watching with headphones outside, so a little bit of glare on the screen, and I did not give it a fair shake, and so I I felt bored by it a little bit because I had seen, so I've seen some parts of the sequels. I've seen Prometheus, and I felt like, and I, I didn't love Prometheus by any means, but like when I was watching it, it felt like I was just watching Prometheus, which obviously Prometheus was just a ripoff of the original Alien. But to me, since I saw it after, it kind of detracted from it. So for a lot of bad reasons, I left it unranked, I'd say. 
I mean, it's understandable. I'm not. I'm not trying to crucify. Oh no, here. understand. I just, I just wanted to give some. Uh, so some people have an idea. I. I don't think it's a bad movie. I just. I probably put myself in a bad position to try to enjoy it. <laughs> All right, moving on. My number nine movie was *Fright Night* by Tom Holland, 1985. Um, so I. Uh, I tend to really like movies with defined rules, and I like movies that strictly adhere to those rules. So that way, you and the characters themselves are kind of on the same playing field. And vampire movies are often a very good place to look if you're trying to find that kind of movie. Uh, this is a classic application of vampire rules about you have to let mm. them, you have to invite them in in order for them to go into the house. They can't be seen in a mirror. Uh, and it's, it's just a fun movie. It's about a kid who finds out that, or he suspects that, his new next door neighbor is got a little bit more going on than meets the eye. And I mean, it's a fun movie. They actually made a remake of it in 2011, I believe. And that was actually fantastic. As Colin well. Farrell, so, I believe played the go... vampire in that movie, right? Yes, he did. And uh, yeah, it's a great movie. Just go for a watch it and you'll have fun. Yeah. With it. I saw it re- for the first time back in October of uh, 2018. So just a few months ago. I, re- I definitely enjoyed it quite a bit. It felt very much like a, a kind of a fun, engaging 80s horror movie. Uh, it didn't, it, you know, it wasn't like just a pure fright fest. It definitely had some some comedic elements, which that was pretty popularized in, in the 80s for a lot of horror movies. But yeah, I had a, a real good time with it. It would have been on my honorable mention, so just outside of my top 30, but that's not really an indictment on it. It was just, I, I mean, I really liked the 30 movies I ranked in my top 30, so I, I definitely enjoyed that. Sure. Alrighty, last but not least was my fifth movie, and it was actually ranked by you, I think, 21st overall. Uh, Will, William Friedkin's 1973, another classic, The Exorcist. Yep. And so this one, just so that people um, know, this came in in our consensus number 12 spot, so just outside our top 10. And uh, I don't know how much I can say about this movie, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be shocked if anybody listening is unfamiliar with the idea but what this movie did is set a lot of groundwork for movies to come it was incredibly jarring in the sense of a child behaving extremely vulgar for especially for the time oh yeah and there was just so many cool scenes yeah i I guess i'm trying to i'm gonna stay spoiler free but there was a lot of good things that were utilized that you wouldn't necessarily think of but once you saw them you're like oh man that is really cool and this movie this movie holds up i watch it usually either once a year or once every couple years and it's it's just a really well made yeah i would say that there was a truly horrific amount of body horror um but in a good way it wasn't like just like a gross it wasn't just like gross and obscene it was they used body horror really well and it made it you feel uncomfortable as a viewer but that's that was the intention and they did that great and yeah if you haven't seen the exorcist it's you know obviously a classic you definitely should go see it and you know, how many how many i was gonna say hundreds maybe not hundreds but how many countless exorcism movies have have come in the wake of the exorcist it's exactly uh, it, it really yeah. it was a trendsetter and you know back in 1973 it, it was a very original concept and played very well 
All right, so I think we are through our honorable mentions and ready to start on our consensus top Which I am 10. super excited to get into, and we're going to we're going to kind of continue doing what we've been doing for movies 10 through 4. We're going to give you some information, talk about why we like it, but try to stay a little more surface level, a little more spoiler free, and then once we get to the top three, we're gonna. I'll shout out a warning. I'll say spoilers ahead. We are going to completely spoil our top three once we start talking about them because we're just gonna really delve in and say why we love these movies and we do love them. And <laughs> there's a reason they're up in our top three. I each one we may not have had specifically in our top three, but if they weren't, they were close. And it's because we truly enjoy them and think they're just wonderful horror movies. And okay, so we will start with number ten. And that will be Silence of the Lambs, 1991, by Jonathan Dem, or Demi. I'm not positive on the pronunciation. Uh, and then, Eric, do you want to kind of take this one away a little bit? Sure. So, Silence of the Lambs um, is a Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins movie. Uh, the basic idea is that um, Jodie plays a police officer who is investigating uh the recent murders around like a rural area uh there's a little bit of a twist she is using information provided by a currently imprisoned and notorious serial killer hannibal lecter played by anthony hopkins um so this movie plays on basically having two villains one that's sort of working for you and one that's still um, at, at large but Anthony Hopkins absolutely steals the show with his performance as Hannibal Lecter. And it, this is just one of those movies. That, this is one of those movies that people like to argue uh, genre semantics. Uh, I think that's a little bit is lost in the conversation. Just watch the movie. It's a good movie, whatever you want to call it. And uh, if it's horror, if it's thriller, if it's just just have fun with it. It's a, it's a great movie. The acting is phenomenal. The characters themselves the, like the ideas behind the characters is so well done and i'll talk about this later the inspiration for the eventual bad guy is uh is also pretty cool yes so. cool and unsettling <laughs> for sure yeah so yes. you mentioned anthony hopkins stealing the show yeah he, he played the charismatic bad guy better than i mean probably as good as anybody can ever play a bad guy and make you actually like root for him because <laughs> you're watching anthony hopkins in this movie and he's so intelligent he's so smooth he's so suave and these conversations he's having with uh jody foster who, yeah, who works for the fbi you just can't help but be so interested by what he's saying and the way he's saying it and you can just tell he's so intelligent but then at the same time yeah he's a serial killer who is revealed he's a cannibal you know he eats people so um, we're not giving away too much information this is given away pretty early in the movie if you haven't seen it most people will have seen this movie but yeah it's very very good the it's got one of my favorite horror sequences of all time which comes towards the end of the film uh and i believe if you've seen the movie you know what i'm talking about uh involves jodie foster and the the bad guy who we uh is named buffalo bill but yeah, that's one of my favorite sequences in, in his house. Um, it's just great, and yeah, a lot to love from this movie. Alrighty, the only, uh, so as we were going through this process, I just wanted to kind of familiarize myself with some of these top 10 directors and see if there's any other horror movies that they showed up on their resume. 
for Jonathan Demme, looks like no. The only movie I actually recognized in his uh, discography was Philadelphia. Okay. With, I believe, Tom Hanks. Yeah, not, not, <laughs> so. not so much a horror movie. <laughs> no, not quite. I'm glad you did that, though, because we're going to get to some of these directors that they're going to have uh, much, much more, uh, much more, not bibliography, uh, filmography uh, to their name. So. Yes. Okay. All right, and moving on, well, number nine is the 1978 classic by John Carpenter, Halloween. So, Alex, this uh, looks like ended up as being your 15th movie and my yes. sixth. What do you have yep, to say so, about it? Um, I would say that this is my favorite slasher, uh, favorite slasher of all time. I'd say pretty closely followed by Nightmare on Elm Street, but Halloween is just classic in every sense of the word. There's uh, a few movies that you don't realize how important soundtrack is or soundtrack or just kind of the music development is until you're, you you watch a movie where it just completely defines the movie. And this is the case in Halloween. The, the theme for Halloween is so iconic, so fitting, so wonderful that like I, I, I think I told you I was just recently watching the 2018 remake, and I'm not even a huge Halloween fan babe, fanboy, but as soon as the theme started playing, it's about 10 minutes into the movie, I was just like, my heart started beating, I was getting this real nice swell of like excitement, and yeah, so, and that's such a, it sounds like a small thing on the outside, but when you have that beautiful sound development throughout the movie tied together with this beautiful piano theme, it just it that just does does it for me and besides that you know halloween's got a really i think well-developed characters you've got a really fun final girl in uh, uh jamie lee curtis and i like that the motivations and kind of some of the backstory is really left up to your imagination with this with this you know really uh, haunting killer of michael myers uh it's it's just a I think at this point in time, it might seem like it's been overdone, this kind of idea, but it was an originator. You know, back in 1978, this was a really defining slasher for the genre and did a lot right that a lot of movies have tried to replicate and struggled because it's it's not easy to put together a pretty simple concept and just execute it so well. Yeah, that's incredibly well said. I mean, this is a movie that, you kind of fall in love with when it was first made just it's not so what they do well is especially with the first movie is they spend a lot of time on the build-up so there's a lot of shots of just the bad guy michael myers being in the foreground without being noticed as he slowly you slowly realize that he's got quite quite the intentions for his return back home and the music is phenomenal. That'll actually be a trend as we move up the list. There are going to be several movies in which uh, music is one of the better known features of a movie. And Halloween is no exception. Fantastic soundtrack. And yeah, bum, 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 bum. It's It's so great like that, especially, I mean, since Halloween eventually you know, spanned a uh, almost a universe. There were so many sequels and... Uh, just to have that tied together music to unite everything and it's so good and it's so well done it just it's honestly wonderful when a film can have that for sure and so john carpenter uh one of the most prolific yeah famous yeah prolific is a better word prolific directors in horror 
Uh, he's got some like The Fog, Christine, They Live, and then a movie that we may or may not be touching <laughs> on uh, as we move up the list. A I little think bit. we might, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and then, uh, well, I think are y'all good on Halloween? Yeah, okay, I think so. So then, moving right forward to our uh, number eight movie, it's going to be 1968 George A. Romero's classic Night of the Living Dead. And Eric, you want to go ahead and take us through a little bit about the movie? Sure thing. So this was number seven on my list, 14 on yours. Night of the Living Dead. This is an originator in the zombie genre. And what this movie does great is it... So I love movies that pit people together against an outside force. So especially in a movie like this, where they're actually confined into a house where... Their safety isn't guaranteed, but for the time being, there's no immediate threat. But things still go absolutely haywire because people, when they're forced into difficult situations where life is on the line, struggle to reconcile their worldviews, yep. basically. And it's the they don't it doesn't go over the top. It doesn't there's no issues with design or with visuals on the zombies. It doesn't try to be anything too fancy and it just is a great movie it's fun it still holds up to this day even with i don't know the hundred zombie movies that have mm -hmm. made sense this was a great original that really does hold up and is worth watching even in 2019 I absolutely agree and i i think i think you mentioned um if not in this episode, but previous episodes, that you you really see a movie where you get these uh, group dynamics in these really stressful situations, and and how these people react to each other, and you think, okay, I'm 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 with this other person. There's this huge threat. We should band together, but it's not always so easy. And you see these really, you know, internal pressures coming as these external threats are also coming, and it almost becomes a case of. Wow, this the internal you know threat was almost worse than this monstrosity outside, and that's really interesting to see. Uh, this was definitely an early early movie where it really uh, identified those traits and kind of played with them. And additionally, you know, having this monster or these monsters as threats that are so familiar, you know, it might be you might have a family member, you might have as you see in the movie, you might have a family member, and it's it's. Reacting to a monster that an hour ago was walking with you or, you know, it's just something that it's so hard to imagine putting yourself in and you're watching these people's live reaction to. And Night of the Living Dead really was like an original of how that would actually play out. So a lot of movies had copied that, but Night of the Living Dead so long ago just so well captured that. Yes, exactly. That monster could be you in a different world. Yep, absolutely. And, and, and you know, being us, us being twin brothers, like I've always, you know, it's it, you almost like when you're watching these movies, you kind of think like, you know, how would I react if like my brother like, you know, turned and was coming at me? It's, it's so hard to put yourself in those shoes because you, you, you even though we see it as logical, like, nope, the person's gone. You just kind of fight back. There's so too much human emotion tied to it. Like it, it'd be so hard to actually move past and be like no you know we can we can help and we can save them like there's got to be some sort of way to you know do something and it's, it's interesting because you get that from the, the the person watching it's like no just go let's go but then when you really think about it it's so human to to really fall to that 
Okay, well, I think if that ever does happen, I think the person who hasn't turned yet should just let the zombie turn them. Because I think we'd have so much more fun if we're both <laughs> Oh, on the can same you side. imagine just wreaking havoc as zombies? We, Dude, we would tear. We would it need to. Re- I think we would need to at least like we have to be in a zombie world where we retain a little bit of mental function, so we still like know each other, so we can still hang out, you know. But <laughs> like a not so far as like a warm body situation. I don't know if you've seen that, but. Like a Shaun of the Dead when he's playing video yeah, games. Yeah, exactly. That would yeah. be perfect. <laughs> uh, that would be fun. All righty. And un- unfortunately, we have to say rest in peace to yeah. George Romero. Passed away uh, yeah, two years ago. Yeah, rest in peace. Absolute so legend of the genre. And one, and, sorry, go ahead. I, I want to add something before we move, but I think you were saying something. Okay. If you'd like to honor his legacy, feel free to watch. So he's got Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead creep show and the original crazies back in the yes. 1970s so he uh he he knew that genre incredibly oh and well. um uh dawn of the or not dawn of the dead sorry um night of the living dead is also a movie that's in the public domain so you can watch it for free uh and you don't have to have any sort of rights to it so a lot of horror movies you see uh, where they're watching a horror a spooky movie it'll be night of the living dead because they don't have to get any sort of copyright uh rules for it which is kind of interesting Oh, yeah, a so a lot, a lot of movies, a, a lot of horror movies where they're watching scary movies in it, it's Night of the Living Dead. And one other thing I wanted to say, too, something that George A. Romero ended up tackling in this film, without giving too much away, is, you know, this is 1968, coming off the civil rights movement in the United States. He ended up tackling race relations in a very, I think, a very well done and interesting way. Um he's he's claimed after the fact that he didn't intend to send a racial message with this film but you enter the case this this happens pretty often with with creators um be it authors directors um what have you where the message that are you know ends up being present in their book even if it wasn't intended people can interpret it how they want and he he can say that but i still see a really interesting and i think a really progressive message on on race racism and race relations in in the united states and i i really respect that yeah i agree completely that's a good good addition as well Alrighty, moving on to our number 7 movie this is our only foreign movie in the top 10 i believe yes i had i had i had it two, is, no three foreign movies in my top 10 but none of them made it Okay, well, I guess you're more <laughs> cultured than I am. All right, uh, it is Train to Busan, 2016, by Yon San Ho. Korean, correct? That South is South Korean. Korean, yes. I feel a little guilty that this is one spot ahead of Night of the Living Dead as, as another zombie film, but um, it's, a great, it's a great movie. It's a really, really good movie. And uh, yeah, I guess I'll just kind of talk about it a little bit. So... Essentially, Train to Busan is a tale of a father who is trying to rekindle a relationship with his young daughter a little bit. He, Him and his wife live apart, and he's taking his daughter on a train to Busan, obviously, the name of the title, which is a further away city from where they live. And essentially, as they're on this train, they start to d- discover that the world is coming to a really big problem with uh this disease that's infecting people and essentially turning them into zombies and you know as a zombie movie as you can imagine the train becomes unsafe at some point but a lot of this movie the 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 real horror is again the relationship between the survivors there's so much conflict among the surviving group like in night of the living dead like we said the same idea 
that a lot of the most compelling parts of this movie are really just the relationships and the character growth and development throughout this crisis. Yeah, that's really well put. I can count on one hand the number of times that I've cried during a movie, and Train to Busan is one of those due to how the yeah, movie ends. Yeah, yep, it's a very gripping, very, very gripping. I agree. So these these zombies are. I guess I don't. We're, we're trying to stay spoiler free, so just watch the movie. If you're a little scared of foreign movies, it is well worth watching with subtitles. It's easy to follow. It's. Oh, the dis the interactions between the people, especially the daughter and the main main husband or father, is just it it grips you mm-hmm. immediately, and then it pulls at your heartstrings throughout the movie, and it's just so. This so is uh, I think this is also shot very well. It's it's very pleasant to watch. You know, a lot of it takes place on a train, and I think the cinematography with that is is very good. You know, Korea, uh, South Korea has there's a lot of good horror movies that come out of like you know Korean horror movies that, that kind of uh, genre in itself it produces some really high quality movies and this is a glaring example of, of really some of the great work that has come out of korea and so as i was looking to see if this director had done anything else i came across a pretty interesting sounding movie that had recently come out uh, the title is psychokinesis okay. And it's about a father with newly acquired superpowers needs to help his estranged daughter before she loses ah, everything, okay. which is ki- kind of a vague description. But based on the success of Train to Busan, I'm definitely interested in checking yeah, that one out. Okay. And the if you can, after this, look up the cover image. It's just this man hovering in like a downtown metropolis type area. Mm. And it looks pretty, pretty You cool. said that was 2018? So either 2017 or 2018 yeah that sounds cool all right so that covers our number seven movie moving into our number six and we have 1980s the shining by stanley kubrick uh, adapted from the same the shining by stephen king so just off off the bat this (laughs) was uh this was a movie that caused there was some a bit of contention on in this. this. A bit of contention on this. So, honestly, this is the only movie that provided true contention, and the contention came from. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, the contention came because Alex had ranked this movie as his number one overall, which film. it still stands. And in my initial, in my initial top thirty, I had not had the movie ranked and, and to, to, to and add so, some context we also ranked a few honorable mentions that we thought were good movies that just didn't quite make it also not in his honorable mentions okay <laughs> and so to be a little bit fair to myself this was an oversight but i didn't help my case because okay so you know whenever you're having an argument you've got to either choose to tuck your tail or <laughs> back or bury your bury your feet and not most move people an bury inch. their feet and don't move uh, an inch. i chose to bury my and that's what i chose to do and honestly this uh this almost caused a delay in the production of a this little episode. bit I, I got petty but, about it so you got very petty like you uh, <laughs> like i tend to do but it's okay says. we we uh I, I took a look at myself and i said eric is this how you want to do this and i said no and i gave it an accurate ranking so it ended up being uh my 18th movie and your number one movie. So now that we've gotten the politics out of the way, uh, just to talk about this movie a little bit, this is a movie in which a writer moves himself, 
his wife and his son uh, into the Overlook Hotel, which is currently uh, n- not being used by yeah, guests. They're just entering the winter season, the off season. Yeah, and they need a caretaker. It's during the off season. And he is trying to uh, basically find inspiration for writing his book. Um, what he doesn't realize is that having that much hotel can take a toll on a man and his family. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I'll, yeah, I'll add a few ahead. things. Um, uh, one thing I'd like to add too. So I, we talked about this with Halloween and this is another movie I, that I think the sound, the, the, the soundtrack is, is very, very good. Like I, I, I've watched this movie countless times and every time the movie starts and you have the overhead view of them driving through the mountains uh, heading towards a hotel and you just have that kind of really deep bass soundtrack playing with the kind of really spooky music i'm just so invested already it's it just it started it's like the music just hits you with this feeling of being unsettled this feeling of upcoming dread and you don't know why but as you'll see later you should feel that way and the movie is really just pointing you to that immediately and it's it's a fairly long movie. I forget. I should have looked up the runtime, but it keeps you gripped really the entire time. Um, yeah, I just love this movie. I, I'm a huge Stephen King fan. I I like. I really like the book as well. It's a. I think it's a terrible adaptation of the book. But, and I I say that, but it's also my favorite horror movie of all time. It doesn't need to be a great adaptation, even though the book was great. It, it's it's very different, but they just it's so good still. Uh, Jack Torrance, played by uh, Jack Nicholson, is just—I mean, he's just—he's just crazy, and it's so interesting watching this person who is—is uh, is, you know between the isolation, the feelings of frustration about his work, the feelings of frustration about his son, just continue to grow and and torment him, and you can see it—you know, his his soul essentially just dropping and him becoming a bit more you know psychotic as the movie progresses and it, it just it's very uncomfortable mm-hmm. and you you get to see how the hotel is making it worse and there's a bit more to the hotel than you really realize and yeah great movie i could talk about it a while so <laughs> i'll, I'll uh, step <laughs> yes. back and if you're interested uh stanley kubrick has done quite quite a few highly recognized films eyes wide shut Clockwork Orange, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and The Moon Landing. <laughs> uh, funny story. Um, in the beginning of this movie, uh, Danny Torrance, who plays, who's the son of uh, Jack Torrance, he's wearing a NASA shirt, and a lot of, a lot of uh, conspiracy theorists like to point to that as Kubrick admitting that he filmed The Moon Landing. He has this character in his ne- one of his next movies is uh, wearing a NASA shirt. <laughs> it's, uh, that's actually like a really big piece of evidence that people cite. Which I think is hilarious. Yeah, it's only hilarious if you <laughs> okay. What's not? What's what not? Do this. Telling let's you. not. Let's not con- confuse our viewers. Eric likes to. Okay, so Eric and my other brother like to to jump on these conspiracy theories like in a joking manner, but then also talk about them seriously. Like so, flat Earth and uh, moon landing, and it's, we're gonna lose credibility <laughs> with the people who are listening to this podcast if you're not careful, Eric. Eric does not believe the moon landing was staged, nor do I. And we're gonna move past it. Okay. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, I would like to speak for myself, but I will, I will allow us to move <laughs> okay. on. Because you would have said the same thing. All right. Uh, our next movie on the list, getting to our top five. Number five is Rosemary's Baby by Roman Polanski, nineteen sixty-eight. And 
And uh, what can you tell me about this movie, Alex? Why do you like it? This is actually one of the, I believe, three movies that we had the exact same ranking for. Oh, was it? Okay, we both had it. kind of fun. Um, we both had it at nine or eight, sorry. Ranked at eight, correct. Uh, yeah, very, very good movie. Definitely a classic horror movie. Uh, one of my favorite horror movie covers of all time, too. It's got the kind of silhouette of the baby carriage on the hill on its own. Uh, very creepy. Very unsettling, excuse me. And uh, yeah, just a great movie. So the overall concept is you have these, well, this pretty wealthy younger couple who move into this really nice upper floor apartment. And I believe it's in New York. It's in a big city. I believe it's New York. And uh, they're essentially trying to get pregnant. And eventually, uh, eventually she does get pregnant. And she at first has this really good relationship with her neighbors. And they uh, recommend a, a new maternity doctor. And things start to get a little a little creepy and a little weird after that. Yeah, and it's one of those movies that plays with uh, the potential for an unreliable narrator. And you don't necessarily know what what's true and what's not. Is this person who I'm being told is our main character who seems credible? Is she, what she's seeing, what she's thinking, is that is that true? Or am I being led yep. astray? And that's a super fun concept to play with and one that's handled in a delicate but pretty well done way. In yeah, it's movie. just a hysterical pregnant woman. What is, why am I, what, she's just getting herself <laughs> in a tizzy. Exactly. Um, yeah, so I think very good. I don't have a, maybe a ton to say about it, but uh, yeah, 19, uh, 1968, Roman Polanski, you said Polanski obviously is a very prolific uh, director as well. Uh, outside horror um, as well. He has a lot of really big films, so you want to kind of cover some of those? Yeah, the two I'd written down were Repulsion and The okay. Tenant, and that doesn't begin to cover right. the list. Of yeah, you were trying done, to focus on horror. He's, I understand. Yeah. He's got a... Uh, He's also very stylistic and little things he does a little similar to Guillermo del Toro, but in a completely mm-hmm. different way. And honestly, we're going to keep it at that. The best thing to do about a psychological movie is not talk about it until people can see yeah. it. So I agree. that's what we're going to do. Uh, that's a great one, though. A lot of these ones that we've said are classic. You know, Night of the Living Dead, Halloween, Silence of the Lambs, Rosemary's Baby. They're, they're classics for a reason. They, they're still great to watch for the first time today. You know, I, I've seen a lot of these movies like Rosemary's Baby I saw for the first time in 2017 and I loved it. You know, don't don't get tur- you know nervous or turned off by the fact that oh it's from the 60s. Oh, like one of these is black and white. It it doesn't matter. <laughs> they're if if this, a lot of these movies, you know, it's they're classics for a reason and that 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 really just holds true and they're they're just great films. Yes. Okay. Um so that covers number 5. Moving forward number 4. This is going to be our last Mostly spoiler free. We may be doing a little bit of spoilers, but we're certainly not spoiling spoiling plot too much. Just maybe some some of the kind of key parts of the movie. Um, but then we're gonna jump in with our top three after this, and we're gonna do spoiler heavy. And again, I'll give a big warning. But our last spoiler free rating or review is gonna be 1982's The Thing by John Carpenter. Um, sorry, I wanted you to take over the movie that. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. This is the movie we suggested we may or may not be talking about. Uh, yeah, we are talking about it. Uh, so the thing, the thing is, uh, what to say about the thing? So it's basically the the premise behind the movie is that there is a team of uh, 
team of Americans who are stationed in Antarctica, Mm -hmm. I believe. And uh, they are immediately met with an issue. Uh, Some... A team from France, uh, or the what France. remains from a team it's, from France. It's it's some some Eastern European country, uh, comes to their camp and they are in hysterics and they eventually find out that that whole camp has been destroyed. And, well, and, the, and the reason the, the thing reason they, is oh, sorry, a, a interject. The reason that this this other group of researchers are are coming to their camp is because they're chasing this dog across the Antarctic wilderness, and the dog runs to the Americans' camp pretty much. Yes, and they quickly realize that all is not well. Um, there's a little bit more to the dog than meets the eye. And this becomes a movie. I mean, this is we're kind of beating a dead horse at this point, but uh, this becomes a movie where deteriorating group dynamics in a life-threatening situation to the absolute max. I mean, you're already in a place where sub-zero temperatures, so that's a little dangerous itself. But then when you have infighting between your group and you've got something that's actively prevent or per, uh, offering a potential for lethalness. It becomes uh, it becomes interesting, becomes fun, exciting for us, not so much for the uh, the crew. Yep. And this is a movie that is, for very good reason, touted for its incredibly well done effects that were used uh, done with practical effects. To, you know, no computer graphic enhancement uh, all practical effects and i think it's a very it absolutely should be applauded for how well the effects were done um, very very good design but even given that the real horrors for this like eric was saying is just this these group dynamics where there's so much distrust and so much unease uh that are just settled between these people and, and these people who are friends they were colleagues they they knew each other but then all of a sudden there's so much doubt and so much, you know, uh, so much just uncertainty with with who to trust and who to believe, and it that just is so interesting. It builds an incredibly tense atmosphere, and it's just wonderful. Yeah, no spoilers, but one of my favorite horror movie scenes of all time uh, occurs during this movie, and it's to not spoil it. It involves yep. okay. Blood, I knew what you're I knew what you're talking testing, about because yeah, yeah, that scene is fantastic, and that it, it really just plays on those those incredibly uh, dwindling uh, not dwindling but um, breaking apart group dynamics and just yeah, it's great. This is also weird. I'll bring this up because there's never going to be another time where I can bring this up. But um, I once had a dream <laughs> okay. that I was in an auditorium in which I was tasked with reviewing this movie. And I created a scenario that didn't happen, but after the dream, I like I thought it happened. So I had to rewatch the movie to confirm whether what I thought happened in my dream <laughs> was true or what actually happened in the movie was true. Um, so without spoiling it, yeah, yeah I, I, I guess, guess I can't well, what's, spoil what's it. What's the verdict? It was, was, did you dream end. something real or fake? Oh, I dreamt something okay. super fake, and then I brought it up actually to one person in person, and they're like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> so. Yeah. Okay. So that rounds out our ten through four, and uh, yeah, all, see, all all movies we we really love that uh, are great horror movies. Definitely recommended. And uh, now we're gonna jump into the three that are extra special. They made our consensus top three, so we both had them all rated pretty darn high. I think the lowest rated I had I had one that was rated just outside my top ten. I believe at eleven or twelve. But the other two we both had in our top. 
So, yeah, movies we really love. And, yeah, you All want right, and let's start it off with, ahead. yeah, number three. This is my number one movie, Alex's 12th. It is the 1975 Steven Spielberg Jaws. Yes. Bottom, bottom, bottom. Yeah. And this is so Jaws. What to say about Jaws? It's it's a movie that I mean it spawned everything. It's it's such a simple concept. I mean, people go swimming, people go to the beach, people live by the beach. It's a fun activity with your family until you invite a shark that wants to eat you. And what this movie does so well is that it pits. So it basically it pits. Okay, so let's just run it down. So we're in a uh, Amityville Island, and the opening scene starts with a young uh, young beachgoers party, and a girl and boy decide to go skiing. Boys had a few too many though, and, and he can't quite get undressed. And unfortunately for the girl, she gets chomped up to bits real good by the shark the, yeah this is discovered this is discovered and the beaches are not shut down unfortunately the next week uh, a young boy is taken off his raft and eaten alive so this prompts a basically citywide hunt for the shark and they catch him they bring bring the shark aboard and rewards afoot the mayor's happy they take their pictures until the next week another incident another shark and the beaches have to get closed again and we get our three main characters out on the boat and this is the be- the favorite thing about this movie for me is just how these characters oh, interact i've got some at, some notes about at one, that at one point when i was uh re-watching this movie i was going to take down some funny things that quinn <laughs> said I just realized I was going to be literally taking down every yeah, single line. So <laughs> Robert had. Shaw, who plays it's... Quint, is just an absolute treasure in this movie. He is phenomenal. He, you know, he's got the haggard old sea seaman just down to a T. He plays it so well. He's got this great, um, I want to call it chemistry, but he's got this. It's a chemistry of dislike between the younger uh, Richard Dreyfus, who plays. Uh, Hooper, who's more of the academic, who's a little bit of le- he's he's less battle tested essentially, and so Quint sees him as oh this this lofty academic who has no practical experience, whereas Hooper sees Quint as oh this this old this old idiot who doesn't know anything, and so they they have this really uh really intense like uh, disagreement with how they should be doing things, and they it definitely boils mm-hmm. over a few times. And a quick quick fun fact, I might get sidetracked here, but so in real life. Um, Richard Dreyfuss, who plays Hooper, and Robert Shaw hated each other. <laughs> they really, really disliked each other. Like, shooting was a big issue sometimes. Uh, R- Robert Shaw sometimes would be drinking and, and coming in a little bit drunk to shoots. And I thought that was interesting. And But also, as a side note, <laughs> this is completely non-Jaws related, but Richard Dreyfuss, who also plays um, the doctor in What About Bob? Uh, you know the movie with Bill Murray? Uh, Richard mm-hmm. Dreyfus hated Bill Murray, absolutely despised him. <laughs> and so, like, like uh, I heard, essentially heard someone talking about it, and they're like, "Yeah, so some of the times you see Bill Murray like smiling after he's annoying him, that's like Bill Murray smiling. <laughs> that's not the character smiling. It's like he's actually getting under his skin." So I thought that was kind of funny, you know, just parallel with Richard Dreyfus and Robert Shaw as they disliked each other in this movie, and then you see it later. But 
Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, uh, yeah, that's, that's the best part. It's like you said, the academic versus the, the sea captain. Oh, you own the cage. Cage goes in the water. Shocks yep. in the water. Cage comes up. No man. Yeah. <laughs> it's something like that. It's just, so the reason why I put this as my number one overall movie I am actually scared of the ocean and sharks because of this movie. But there was not not because a of little well, bit. I don't I think know, it's a little bit. Because I'm afraid movie. of lakes because of this movie. Like I still swim in them, but like I have this irrational <laughs> fear of sharks being in lakes now because of this movie. Do you want to know how bad it was for me at one point as a kid? I started having dreams that our living room <laughs> oh, would yeah, flood yeah, and there would be a there. shark. Dude, I there is it's like three feet deep, but apparently in my childish childish mind it's like a 50 foot (laughs) cavernous living room uh there i mean there would be weeks before we would go up to our cottage up north where we have this lake where i would just have shark dreams absolutely just nonstop. and then uh, you know you know what those bastard did once i started uh not being so scared of them they started coming (laughs) out on the land land. (laughs) Uh, yeah yeah but the the only time I've ever had to truly face this fear or in my mind face this fear was we were visiting friends in California and we took Kai or not it was in Florida. California. It was Florida it was when we were down there for the like conference thing. Right. With- oh, yes. It was in Florida. OK. We uh, we took kayaks out and it was a little bit of a choppy, yeah. choppy uh, sea. And so every time, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the ocean. Maybe I'm speaking out of place, but anytime it's choppy, <laughs> are you, are you familiar it's choppy, with the ocean? <laughs> I'm I'm just thinking about this and I'm getting secondhand scared. So just let me let me tell the story. So anytime the waves would kind of come over, they look dark. They look a little black, like as the waves come over. And guess what? Those that kind of looks like a shark. <laughs> and guess what? We were told before we took the kayaks out: be mindful for stingrays and small. Oh, yeah, sharks. we saw a shark like last week in this area. The guy told us as we already paid for the kayaks. We're like. Uh, what? Yeah. <laughs> Granted, we were old, but not yeah, old. We were teenagers. Like, we were probably 14 yeah, we were young teenagers. And uh, so it's just like, um, get me out of here. I stayed within like 20 feet of shore. I That was like, we were out there for like a half hour. That was one of the worst half hours of my life. <laughs> it was still honest. fun, but it was also like, yeah, your, my heart was beating the whole time. I was, you know, my adrenaline was kicking in, but yeah. I just literally got nothing out of that from an enjoyment <laughs> standpoint. Like I would rather have been in a bathtub in a kayak than out on that open ocean. Uh, yeah. And so getting back to Jaws, um, obviously Jaws inspires this fear. And I think a lot of people now have, I think a lot of it is, is almost an irrational fear of sharks because attacks on humans by sharks are very, very rare. And people have this fear like, oh, anytime I go in the ocean, if I ever see a shark, I'm just dead. Some sharks are aggressive, but most are pretty calm and, so unfortunately, I think they've been stereotyped and it's led to some problems. But in general, this this movie definitely scared a lot of people. And I think some interesting things about it, this essentially started the the idea of a summer blockbuster. Before this movie, there, mm. like summer movies were usually smaller releases. But th- then this movie comes out, Steven Spielberg, you know, acclaimed director. And adjusting for inflation, it's the highest grossing horror movie of all time. Mm-hmm. It's the, it's the I think I I think it's the fourth hot no that's at maybe fourth highest of all time like any movie I'd have to double check that but it's very high up there and for a horror movie that's wild that's wild that's so much success so many people saw this movie and it really influenced a lot of people and uh, caused a, a great deal of fear of sharks 
And another thing I really like about this movie is that it's call it what you want. It's kind of a slasher. It kind yeah. of is. And but what what it so what it the problem with it is is that there's an easy solution from getting away from the villain, staying on mm-hmm. shore. But the, the nice kind of touch they do pretty early on when they have those two fishermen on the dock and they have the dock collapse onto themselves, they're only 10 <laughs> right. feet from shore and they are in immediate danger. And it's just like, okay, maybe it's not just safe anywhere. Well, yeah. And so that kind of brings you back well, in. You, you have and the, it's, you're sorry, never. I was going to say, you have the continued problem of people continuing to swim because the mayor of the town needs like the tourist revenue. And so he like refuses to close the beaches, even though Brody, who's the, the chief of police, he really wants to close the beaches. And, you know, he, he's like being told, no, yeah, we've had these shark attacks, but we need, we need the beaches open. So then, then there's more opportunity for the shark to continue terrorizing. Yes. Yes. This, uh, this movie's got some iconic quotes that people use just anywhere. I mean, it's, it's I I don't know I I love this movie every time I rewatch it it's fun still get a little spooked out and uh, yeah I, I don't know what I else think to we, say about we, it. I think we it's can't uh, talk about Jaws and not mention the amazing score done by John Williams um, absolutely yes. iconic uh, and it, it, it's used in situations now like and, and as parodies but you know as soon as you hear the music that it's it's tense and it's setting something up that's gonna come for you like the da da. Like so good, so perfect for this movie. And so people and people always quote that, but then also you look at it like when they're they've got the bottles or the barrels attached to the shark. It goes on from the bob to like this like adventurous sounding, like whimsical. Yeah, absolutely. He plays around with it so well. And I was reading that apparently when John Williams first brought. The, the the main sound like the main theme to steven spielberg spielberg didn't like it he like he's like no you need to do something else mm-hmm. and then after the fact spielberg like was asked about that and he quoted his quoted saying like yeah i was being really dumb <laughs> i was like it was it was great <laughs> and for some reason i didn't like it but it it wouldn't have been the movie it is without the score is what he said no definitely not Definitely not. So thank you, John Williams. And if you guys, if you want to feel inadequate about yourselves, go look at John Williams' IMDb page. My (laughs) goodness. He he's just, I mean, he has created the thematic sounds for so many movies, so many universes, Jurassic Park, Star Wars, Harry Potter, like all incredibly iconic um, music and soundtracks, right? Incredibly iconic and, and, and so well known this guy has his hand in all of them <laughs> it's, it's yeah yes. you want to feel inadequate seriously check out his imdb and just be like well you know some people <laughs> some people just are more talented than i'll ever possibly be <laughs> but i'm i'm appreciative of it because he's he's you know obviously on this movie specifically he he made it made it better he made it what it is so yeah and we we obviously don't need to speak to the credibility of steven spielberg uh, yeah. i mean his name speaks for himself but just having the the range to do Jaws, Jurassic Park, and Schindler's List—three very distinct like, movies. Oh yeah, absolutely. Even add Ready Player One <laughs> that just came out that last year. It's just every genre he just absolutely crushes. Yep, yep, it was great. I also, I always got used, especially when I was little, got so uncomfortable by. So they're on this little boat. They're on Quint's boat for like the pretty much the final, the third and final act of the movie. I, 
I, I already know when, what when you're going to say. They I meant would to move mention from the this. front of the boat to the back, or back, you know, back and forth. And they're on this outer edge that's like a couple inches, <laughs> and they're holding on, and just their feet are like dangling. And I'm like, there's like a thirty foot shark. Like it, it's probably thirty feet, right? It's it's much bigger than any actual great white. It, it's enormous, and it's like the size of their boat essentially. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh yeah, I'll just go on this side as the boat's rocking as I'm dipping into the water. Oh man, yeah. Because there's a scene even when a wave splashes up, and I believe it's, um, I believe it's Brody. a police officer who's walking. Yeah, Brody who's walking past, and he like his one of his feet kind of slips yeah. on it. Um, but yeah, to give you that size perspective, the scene when uh, Brody's chumming the water and he's kind of looking back and forth oh, between the water and Quinn, and then he just throws it, and the shark pops up, and he slowly walks back. You're gonna need a bigger. I think boat. you're gonna need a bigger. Oh, uh, and that that is incredible. Because yeah, that scene where he's chumming and he's kind of like joking, he's got a cigarette in his mouth, and the shark just breaches, uh, and he just is like, you know, he he just his eyes just go blank, and he's just staring, and he's like slowly walking backwards, yeah. and he's like. Because he's a bit afraid of the water, too, which makes it extra scary. You can kind of put yourself in his shoes, yeah. and he's like, I'm done. <laughs> this is not what yeah. I signed up for. Yeah, yeah. So absolutely great movie. Uh, number three consensus, and I think well-earned. Yes. All right. And now how we're going to do this, our final two um, – we're going to kind of split it up. I'm going to talk about this next movie the, a little bit more, and Alex is going to talk about the, the first movie a little bit more, but we're also going to still bounce ideas off each other. Um, and both of these movies were in our personal top fours, which is exciting to have mm-hmm. that, that good of a consensus on it. And I'm going to start off with our number two overall movie, which was Alfred Hitchcock's 1960 Psycho. So just to start this movie, anytime I get involved in a discussion about this movie, I like to talk about the inspiration for the character of Norman Bates. And um, interestingly enough, the character is based off a real person named Ed Gein. So Ed Gein provided the inspiration not only for Norman Bates, but also for Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs and Leatherface in Texas Chainsaw Yeah, Massacre. so it's all slightly loosely based, but it is it is based <clears throat> off a real person. The some of the ideas yeah, so of I'm what gonna, they did, yeah. So I'll talk about him a little bit and you should be able to kind of put the pieces together of how those characters were formed based on his uh interesting to say the least background. So Ed Gein <laughs> lived in a family with his mother, father and brother. His father was kind of a failure and an alcoholic, and his mother was about as strict of a person as you can get. She hated their father, and she hated any woman that wasn't herself. So eventually, the whole family uh, moved into isolation on a farm, uh, and shortly thereafter, Ed's father died. The only time the two sons ever left the house was for school, so they had limited social interaction. They really never saw anybody besides classmates and then their mother. And then from an early age, their mother was strict Lutheran, constant Bible readings from the Old Testament, constantly talking about the evils of women and of society in general, how everybody was doomed to eternal damnation. Uh, Eventually, um, so Ed, Ed, wholeheartedly trusts, believes, and loves his mother. His brother doesn't so much. 
there's a fire on their farm one day, and the police are called, and Ed's brother is dead. And initially it's ruled as incident due to the fire, but then afterwards they realize he was actually strangled to death. Nothing ever comes to that. There's speculation that maybe Ed did it, who knows. At this point, it's just Ed and his mother living on the farm. Interestingly enough, uh, Ed's reputation from classmates and from like the rest of the neighborhood was that he was a quiet guy, but pretty nice. He actually would babysit for some local people, and they people always said, oh yeah, he's pretty good with children. That goes down the, uh, down the drain after his mother's death, and he is kind of spiraling out of control. Eventually, he takes a shop to the takes a takes a trip to the local um, market, and he kidnaps and murders and deskins the attendant. Oof! And he's qu- pretty quickly realized that he was a suspect in this crime. So the police take a trip to his house, and what they find is incredibly unsettling. He has got uh, tens of skeletons. He has got chairs that are. Uh, been stripped and rebound by skin he has got uh, countless uh, animals that have been stuffed he has got teeth scattered everywhere he has uh, a skeleton of his mother sitting in his room he has a dress that was formed from skin Um, so you can kind of see how each of those individual characters has been formed based on Leatherface using the skin of the victims, Buffalo Bill literally wearing the skin of women, and uh, Norman Bates with the intense mommy yeah, issues. That, that, so I, that I did, is, that's uncomfortably oh, more accurate than I thought the, <laughs> the inspiration was. I thought it was much more loose, but that is uh, very unsettling that that's a real human being. Yes. Um, and he was, he was tr- when he was tried, he was tried, or he pled not guilty due to insanity. And he spent his days in a psychiatric hospital. And when he was in, fo- eventually his house burned down. They sus- people suspect arson from like the locals. But when he was informed of this, he said, "Probably better that way." <laughs> and it's just like that's yeah. just yeah. So Ed Gein, uh, terrifying human per- human being, and also kind of an <clears throat> interesting look at nature versus nurture and developing i don't know like sociopathic or psychopathic tendencies obviously his strict mother played a part in his what he eventually ended up doing so enough about that guy though let's talk talk more about the movie so the reason i like this movie so much just from the get-go is we so basically how this movie is set up is that there's a uh, woman who works for like an investment banker, and she is tasked with depositing forty thousand dollars into the bank for one of that, his did clients. Did you get the inflation numbers on that? Nineteen sixty today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, forty thousand. I don't know. Couple, probably yeah, two hundred thousand. I'm thinking. Um, and so anyway, she I mean, she seems unassuming. She seems like a normal woman until she takes off of the money and runs. So now it's looking like this is going to be a heist movie or she's going to come into issues with somebody wanting this money and 
potentially doing something bad. She's a very bad thief, though, because she's immediately getting suspicion from police <laughs> after like for no reason, other than other than her just being shady, like you know, shady and weird and. Uh, and and yeah, all of that creates such tension. So like, yeah, she pulls over to sleep, and she's acquested by a police officer, and she's incredibly shady. That same police officer watches her tr- trade in a car for a new one, and so you're just constantly on edge about what she's doing. Like, what's her game plan? Where are we going? What are we mm-hmm. getting to? Um, and then she finds herself at the Bates Motel trying to catch a night of sleep this is a really well done shift of narrative so up until the hotel she it's still all about the money she's trying to find a place in her room where she can find the money or hide the money until norman and her sit down in the parlor to eat dinner and what this conversation does is it transfers the story from being about marion stealing the money to being about norman his upbringing and what his current yeah, life absolutely. is. So you basically go from one movie to a next one in one conversation because shortly thereafter, who we thought was the main character is murdered, not maybe 40 minutes into the movie. And a very, very cool <clears throat> shot. Very. Yep. Yes. Iconic, iconic, classic, and made more so by. A classic soundtrack. Yeah. That was supposed to be a drum roll. Yeah. Sorry, that wasn't. You did it. <laughs> and there the thing go. is, in, during that conversation between Norman and uh, Marion, Mar- you can tell Marion like feels bad for Norman. Like he's such an unassuming person. Like he, he just he seems like a little and he, kid and he's, who's stuck under his. Mother's and he's definitely wing. kind of intrigued and attracted to her. She can tell, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and um, yeah, and so what now? Now what we're tasked with is piecing together the tepid history of Norman Bates and what's going to come of the actions that we just saw unfold. And eventually, everybody starts looking for Marion, her boyfriend, her sister, and then even a private investigator who is hired by these investment bankers to try to find the money. As they're going through, kind of the. Uh, location that they thought Marion would be the private investigator shows up to the Bates motel and if there's one complaint about this movie I could see somebody thinking that that private investigator was overpowered like <laughs> he was just like he seemingly like knew that Norman was hiding yeah. something like what I'd like to see was how he um, talked to all of the other motel owners and to see if he went as deep as he right, did with Norman yeah. he was very but, very uh, very prodding yes very prodding but that that conversation, like watching how Norman goes from his kind of cheery, suave, confident, I, I'd say almost kind of goofy too. Well, yeah, goofy. But then he starts stuttering. He starts getting smiling and then frowning, yeah. and it's and this is I'll talk about this as we go on. But uh, Anthony Perkins just absolutely is phenomenal and his range in this character and what he can do to make this character seem credible and convincing. Oh, I completely agree. Completely agree. And just to, just to like illustrate this. Uh, so eventually the private investigator is killed by Norman and of shocking scene. He's in, looking into the house and you get the, the quick music. 
knife comes out, boom. But after after that happens, there's a scene where Norman's just like staring off into the distance, and then he looks directly at the camera for like five seconds, mm-hmm. and it's just so unnerving. And uh, eventually, things boil down. The eventual reveal about Norman as he's dressed up as his mother. Well, and the fact is... that you find the skeleton right before too, so you you get yes. you right right away. You know, wait mother's dead and then you you see him and it's so unsettling so creepy because then you then you fully understand the amount of delusion that exists like you you, he seems creepy and crazy before but you you don't know to what level until this quick sequence where yeah they're hiding in the basement they find the skeleton and then he's at the stairs dressed in this gown with the white hair with the knife and it's like wow and there's always there's always kind of a it's always kind of a difficult to assess when a movie kind of spells something out for you like if they overdid it or underdid it i think how this movie ends is fantastic the way they explained the character and let that soliloquy happen with norman sitting there and his mother's voice mm-hmm. playing as he slowly turns into a smile and the camera fades out to the car being drenched from mm-hmm. the pond. And that scene is just hauntingly, beautifully well done. His 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 smile coupled with the fact that we've been presented that he has basically got multiple personality disorder and he's thinking as his mother is just so it's just it's just oh, and correct amazing. me if I'm wrong, but as he's smiling too with the camera effect, his face also starts to look like a skull too, like his mother's, right? It yeah. does. You see that you see that skull Which, of the mother, yeah. right? It's like a half. So that's a just done super well. Super, super well. Hitch I mean, Hitchcock obviously is is one of the greatest directors of all time. He knows horror and he, he was a pioneer of a lot of cool um you know, techniques, especially for horror movies, and you can see it all in this movie. Yeah, and one one thing, just right off the bat, before the movie even starts, the opening sequence is just disturbing. It's like it gives this really quick lettering fading in and out, spliced with that like super intense high pitch mm-hmm. music. It just makes you feel like, uh. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's because yeah, Hitchcock, yeah, I mean, he's done Rear Window, The Birds, Vertigo, Psycho, and uh, there's there's a whole podcast that. Uh, breaks down this movie and the constraints that uh, Hitchcock faced as he produced it. But uh, he kind of took a risk oh, with this yeah. one. He didn't have the backing of a major producer, and he was putting his reputation on the line. And thank God he did, because it turned out to be my favorite. No, second favorite. No, third favorite <laughs> horror movie of all and time. That, I feel like those are always in flux, because I feel like at some point this is like – I guess sometimes I feel like, oh, Psycho's my favorite. Sometimes I feel, oh, Shining's my favorite. Sometimes I feel, oh, this number one that we're going to talk about is my favorite. It's it's a bit in flux, too. It depends on your mood a little bit. True. That's very true. Okay, so are you all good about Shining? Or not about Shining, about Psycho? I mean, I think so. Basically, just watch the movie. I know we spoiled it, but even though we spoiled it, and it's in black and white, it's from the 60s, Watch it for Anthony Hopkins' performance. Not Anthony Hopkins. You got me on Silence of the Lambs now. Watch it for Anthony Perkins' performance and watch it. Even I, I'm not going to say watch just the last bit of it, but if you don't want to watch the movie, at least look up that scene yep, because it's sure. it's it's horror at its finest. It really I absolutely is. agree. 
Okay, and that leads us to our number one. And this might surprise a few people, but I think for the people who have seen it, it won't be so surprising. It is 2005's The Descent by director Neil Marshall. This is a British horror film, and I'll kind of run you with a quick summary. So we're introduced to a group of female friends who are whitewater rafting, and immediately after, um, this main uh, woman, Sarah, is traveling home with her husband and child, and they're in a brutal car accident and her husband and child are killed in, in a very uncomfortable fashion where some pipes from this truck they were in an accident with like penetrate the windshield and immediately just impale the husband. So it's a very gruesome death. So immediately you see that Sarah is a bit of a fractured person. She's not broken, but she's fractured for sure. And the rest of our movie takes place not so long after. This group of friends who routinely meet up to go on these type of adventurous trips decide they're going to go into Appalachia somewhere undescript in Appalachia, maybe like West Virginia, but they're in the woods and their main goal is to go spelunking in a nearby cave. Um, and then it kind of is kind of going to turn out to be not exactly what everybody had in mind. So this is a group of about six or seven, you know, female friends. There's one new person who one of the girls knows, but she just is kind of joining the group new. And yeah, so they, they have some fun the night before. You get these glimpses into Sarah still being uncomfortable by the death of her husband and child. It's still haunting her. She like says, like, you know, somebody says a quote. She's like, oh, my husband used to say that, and they get kind of quiet. So you can clearly tell this is still weighing on Sarah, but she's trying to, you know, spend time with her friends and trying to heal a little bit. So as we get to this caving adventure, they're driving through the woods. They find this cave. It's really cool. They, they go down on wires, and they're in this really great landscape uh this really cool cave it's huge <laughs> and here's where the horror starts so the there's the other i'd say the there's two main girls and it's sarah who i've already introduced and juno is the other one so juno has a pretty big ego and she you know is like okay i, I read the guidebook i know where we're going and she just takes them through and they one of their first tunnels is incredibly narrow incredibly narrow like you know, if you're worming your way through, they have maybe half a foot of clearance, but that's about it. So you're essentially just inching your way through. And to me, without any other thing happening in the movie, that's just absolutely terrifying. I have a little bit of claustrophobia, but even if you don't, they're, they're going through this cave. You don't even know for sure if these tunnels go somewhere because it's a pretty unexplored cave. And as we'll find out soon, even more unexplored than you previously thought. And they're climbing through these narrow tunnels. At one point, Sarah even gets stuck and starts panicking. And then there's a rock slide and the tunnel closes. And here we get some of the interesting strife that starts with the movie. Uh, it's found out that after this tunnel collapses and they're kind of stuck a bit further in the cave than where they came in, that Juno, who, like I said, has a bit of an ego, decided not to bring a guidebook because this wasn't the cave that was in the guidebook. This is an unexplored cave that she wants them to explore and then name themselves as they come out of it. Some of the people are not so happy about that. That's very risky. It's not for sure, you know, they're going to find an easy exit. And so there's immediately some uh, strife going on with the friends. And all those, all the time this is happening, 26 minutes into the film, you get an idea that not everything is as it seems. This isn't just a movie about people getting lost in a cave. 26 minutes in, they light a flare in the foreground. In the background, you see something. You don't know what it is, but it, it, there's this 
this creature. There's this humanoid creature just in the background of this shot, 26 minutes in. Nobody, none of the friends know what's there. And that's just setting the stage. <laughs> that is just setting the stage for this really creepy movie. So as we kind of continue, they're moving forward. Um, you get a lot of good insights into these friendships, and the, there's a really good character development throughout. But you also learned how fractured the friendship between Juno and Sarah is. So Sarah obviously has this, this these huge baggage with the death of her loved ones, and Juno is, I think, feeling like a bit like she's lost her friend, and they've had a lot of conflict. And you get a lot of good backstory there. So, uh, yeah, it's just very interesting. And then w one of the next horrific things that happens again and you're so, sometimes sometimes you don't even need you know this is eventually a movie that's going to be a creature feature but the, the next big horrific thing is they're uh, crossing this pretty long gap it's probably about 10 15 feet and they're using uh just rope and sliding through and the last person to cross is a juno and as she's coming the rope breaks and one of the girls grabs it and as it slides through her hands and she lets the friend up, you just see her hands are just gashed open, which is just, it's tough. <laughs> it's tough. Okay. And I'll try not to, I'm not going to do such a huge breakdown, but I'm just pointing out some really creepy things that happened in this movie. And, uh, sure. like even then later you have, uh, 48 minutes in the new girl who joins this group. She thinks she sees daylight and gets excited and runs forward and just immediately fall, falls down this hole and shatters her leg. And there's a disgusting amount of bone showing. And, I mean, you can just picture being in this cave. You don't know where if you can get out. And then you break your leg. Ooh, that's tough. Very, very tough. And then 52 minutes in, finally Sarah sees the first creature. And it's another background shot, but she just sees it from a distance. And she's the only one. So nobody believes her. And she starts panicking. And she tells them and nobody believes her. And then... But then this is where all heck breaks loose and the creatures are just fully attacking the group now. Everyone knows there's creatures. And but this is this is where you get a good, you know, I don't want to I'm trying to collect my thoughts here because something I really appreciate in horror movies is when you have a really strong, resilient victim. When you have a horror movie mm -hmm. victim that fights back against their attacker, against their pursuer, they don't just give in. They're they're a strong resilient person and this entire group fits that to a t juno especially displays incredible strength and loyalty by fighting off these creatures to save their friends uh sarah similarly does that and it's just uh it's honestly just great you get one of my favorite character developments in any horror movie with sarah later in the film as some of her friends are are have died she lands in this pool of blood and she emerges I mean, it's just picture perfect. She emerges from this pool of blood and she is gone from fractured into completely broken. She becomes this, she becomes so dead inside that she is killing these creatures left and right. Juno is her only friend that she knows has survived at this point. And then as they're getting swarmed by creatures towards the end of the movie, Sarah just turns to Juno and just slashes her in the leg. And, and, and Juno is, is so confused, but it's just she's been broken, but she's doing anything to survive at this point. And that was so interesting to me. And uh, she just and I, I, I put in my notes as a question. Was it a mix of self-preservation? Was it anger at Juno for getting them in this situation? Was it pity? Did she know that they were going to die eventually and just contribute to it? So a lot of just really cool, cool things there. And I don't know if you know this. I think you probably do, but 
Uh, so there's a very bleak ending. For It shows at first that Sarah gets out, and she runs to the car and drives away, and you think everything is good. But then she wakes back up, and she's in the cave. So it, she, she hallucinated escaping, and you just have the assumption that these creatures are going to come back for her. Uh, but in the American release of the movie, they actually don't show her waking up in the cave, and they actually say she survived. Did you know that? Oh, no, I didn't. That's Yeah, because there's actually a sequel <laughs> that takes place with Juno and Sarah, I believe. So I love the bleak <laughs> ending, though. I, I feel like I, I don't know yeah, if I did a great job. That was too much summary and not enough why I liked it, but... Well, that that's going to provide yeah. the groundwork. Now let's let's okay. talk about it. So one of the things you touched on, and uh, maybe I'm going to sound like a broken record because I brought this up in Psycho, but the double final girl dynamic, it's very much like a nature versus nurture thing. Like Juno had been preparing by doing strong stuff mm-hmm. her whole life. She's like the macho, egotistical one. And Sarah uh, wasn't. She was broken. She was beaten. And what she had to overcome was proved to be a better preparation than everything that Juno yeah. had done. Because at the end of the day, Juno still ended up caring about her friends. And and that that was broken out of Sarah. It, it was broken. Well, not even just not even just that. It's just that the strength to escape the situation Sarah had str- was strong. Well, that's what I'm saying. I think it's because she became broken. That, and that yeah. that's where her strength came from. Whereas Juno, I think, was held back by still her. I mean, she still had her kind of wits about her. She still had her feelings and her her fear. But Sarah just didn't have it. She was broken. She no longer had fear. She no longer had. Uh, feelings of friendship or love she just i think she was i mean i really just think you know she was a fractured person entering the cave and then she became broken at some point during the cave and and that led her to what she did yeah it's just like split the people who are broken are the strongest yes um i thought a very fun little tidbit here not a single real cave was cave was used in their shooting every Oh, yes, I, yeah. I did read that. That's incredible Everything, set yeah. design. So the production designer was Simon Bowles. And they, I think he made something like 27 unique caves, and then they got just using different like uh, angles and different ways of shooting. They got, I mean, it, you get the real feeling that they're completely trapped, and there's this massive network of caves. You get the feeling that they're miles underground, and they have miles to go to get anywhere close to above ground. And it's to do that on a completely artificial set is just incredible. Yeah, it because it looked great. I mean, you if you can point out to me a point where something looked off, I'd be happy to see it because I never have seen it in the multiple times I've no, watched I the agree. movie. No, I agree. And like I said, too, it's it's a movie that is still scary and still compelling, even without the creatures. <laughs> and you get them really late as late players into the game. And so it, none of the first, you know, they don't show up against the group until 50 minutes into the movie but that first 50 minutes is phenomenal it's great storytelling it's great setup and it still makes you feel uncomfortable it makes you feel claustrophobic it makes you feel terrified this entire movie it, it, it's not just a creature feature it's a it's a real story about these friends and, and these almost fractured relationships between these friends and how that impl- influences their ability to survive yeah yeah exactly. it's just phenomenal um yeah yeah 
and yeah, similar similar to Jaws. Uh, for me, I like Jaws a lot because I I am scared of sharks. The Descent plays into. I mean, I, I can't say everybody, but because I don't think I'm especially claustrophobic, but just the idea of splunking and crawling through a cave, and especially in that scene where the girl gets stuck and she can't move, and then especially like as she's stuck and it starts to like rumble as if it's going to collapse, it's just it, there's nothing nothing that you can do to convince me that that's not a terrifying situation. Oh, yeah, completely, completely agree. And, yep, so this is one... Again, if you haven't seen this, you know, we, we spoiled it here, but it's still great. It's a very fun movie. Uh, you know, an all-female cast, I think it, they did absolutely great. They had really good relationships with each other. It really felt like they were longtime friends and great direction. So everything about this movie I just absolutely loved. Yes. Not, not a single thing I really would change or say like, oh, I, that was kind of bad. I, I mean, I truly enjoyed every part of this movie. The only p- possible thing, so I tried to come up with a negative, is with the creature design, I don't think it was bad, but I also don't f- think that the creature design took it to another level. Uh, yeah. Like, it wasn't so good that you'd write home about it, but it wasn't bad enough to detract from it. I would agree with that. It. I would agree with that. Okay, so that's our uh, consensus top 10. I think that's kind of all I had written about The Descent. And yeah, consensus top 10. Feels great to have gone through those and to have worked together on this and shared it. And I think, you know, just talking about it, we, I think ourselves even got a deeper appreciation for for these movies. So I hope uh, for the people listening too, you get a little bit of that as well. Yeah, for sure. And if anybody's curious, so we each ranked 30. Uh, there was only eleven movies that we didn't have in common, so it kind of kind of showing our, our uh, taste, similar yeah. tastes a little bit. But uh, yeah, this was a lot of fun. This was a, a difficult but rewarding, uh, rewarding task that we've set upon, and I'm glad we did it. And I mean, it, even just learning a s- small tidbits as you kind of think and research thing is always worthwhile. Absolutely, yeah, it was fun. I mean, learning about the. I mean, I, until recently, I didn't know that thing about the set design for the caves in the descent, and that just that amplifies the movie for me so much. It, it really gives me a bigger, a greater appreciation. Yeah, see, that the thing is, like, some people would say, "Oh, it wasn't in a cave," but I say it wasn't in a right, cave. Exactly. <laughs> it looked. How did good. they not film that in a cave? Yeah. Um, well, okay, Eric. Well, thanks for joining me today and for another podcast. Uh, I had a great time. Hope you enjoyed yourself as well. Sounds like you did. And uh, so, yeah, to our listeners, until next time.